You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Associate Minister Kirk McKenzie. volunteer here at St. John's. Today's Bible passage is from Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the fountain of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all people see his glory. All those who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. For he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Well, this psalm or this song that we're looking at today, Psalm 97, has a lot to say about joy. It's right there at the start and at the end. Verse 1 says, the Lord reigns, which means the Lord rules or the Lord's in control. Let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice, or let the distant shores have joy. So it's right there at the start, and then at verse 11, right near the end, it says, Light shines on the righteous, and joy on the upright in heart. So near the start and near the end, the theme of joy is there. And in particular, the author focuses on joy coming when we praise God. So one of the results of praising God is that those who are praising him receive joy. Now, it's interesting to think about joy in relation to pleasure. Both are very positive emotions to have. Um, But I'd argue that joy is something we should seek more than we would seek pleasure. Pleasure is good, right? But you have pleasure, say you're eating something delicious and you experience pleasure. Or you're doing something that's really exciting, like riding a roller coaster, if roller coasters are your thing, or playing a game that you really love and you experience pleasure, or you're doing something that releases endorphins in one way or another and you experience pleasure in that way. But usually what happens is once you finish doing that activity, the pleasure sort of subsides and comes to an end. The difference is with joy that joy can continue even when you're not doing the activity that would bring you the happy feelings, the positive feelings. Joy can go on for hours, days, months, and years. It's a deeper and more long-term positive emotion than pleasure. Now, it can come hand in hand with pleasure. They're not in competition. But I would argue that joy is ultimately a better thing to have as an ongoing part of your life. So, The author here is talking to us about praising God and saying, a result is you will receive joy in your life. And the author sets the stage in the early uh, verses for this psalm or song of praise 
by getting us to think about nature and weather. Reminds me of a conversation we're having with our youngest daughter, Kira, quite recently, just a few weeks ago. We were telling her about a trip we took to Queensland when she was really little. She was just about to turn two. And we thought she couldn't remember it. Yeah, you don't remember things when you're that young. And she said, no, I remember. I, I remember going to Queensland. And we're like, no, no, you don't. You know, you're too little. You can't remember going there. You were tiny. You could barely, you know, you don't just started walking. And um, well, she'd been with her a little while. Yeah, she's tiny. She goes, no, no, I remember. And she told us a story from Queensland which confirmed that she did indeed remember. It was from getting either getting on or off the plane at the airport. Uh, you've got to climb the stairs into the plane at Gold Coast Airport. And I remember it being probably the windiest wind I've ever experienced uh, climbing up those stairs. And I had little Kira with me, you know, uh, walking up the stairs. And I remember having to sort of bend down and grab onto her uh, because it was just so windy. And you had that feeling that she might blow away being so small. Now, of course, there was railings and stuff that wasn't going to happen. But she clung onto me, gripped as tight as I've ever been gripped by a small person ever. Um, understandably, she felt like she might blow away. And that memory had just stuck in her head. Uh, possibly that's her earliest memory. And as she told us that, I realised a lot of my earliest memories are of extreme weather as well. I don't know if that's the case for you, but it seems like storms, floods, extreme wind, lightning, these sort of things really do stick in our memory. And if you think about it, when the weather gets really intense, when it feels like the weather's out of our control, it does get your attention, doesn't it? And it makes you feel small. And bear in mind, we live, well, you know, I live in Melbourne. I'm not, not sure where you're watching from, but if you've got the internet, it's a good chance you live in a place where there's plenty of modern luxuries that protect us from the weather. You know, storm drains and emergency services and all this sort of stuff. But little not quite two-year-old Kira wouldn't have known about all those protections. And then if we think about an ancient piece of writing like we're looking at today in the Bible, this is written over 2,000 years ago. They didn't have all those protections. So when you're thinking about the weather and we're looking at these images that we've got in these early verses of dark storm clouds and fire and lightning and mountains, and when it talks about the heavens, it's not talking about the place you hope to go to when you die. It's talking about the big things in the sky, which would have been pretty unknown about at that point, star, stars, sun, moon, talking about all these things that just seem huge and powerful and well out of our control. Giving us, the author is giving us all these images of big things in nature and comparing them with God to make sure that we get our perspective right, to make sure that we know that we humans are small and not powerful in comparison with the great all-powerful God. I want to make it clear, it's not that we're unimportant. <laughs> it's just that in comparison with God, we are small and we are not powerful. Put it another way, uh, I am not worthy of your worship. You know, like me, Kirk, right? The, the highest praise that I or another human being deserve is like, if we've done a good job at something, you might go, 
well done, you did a, that was a good effort, good on ya. <laughs> like that sort of praise, that's okay. But any sort of praise that's heading into worship territory where we start to treat someone like God, no, don't do that. That's not the level that people are at. That sort of worship praise is reserved only for God. And the author using these images from nature and from weather is setting that picture really clearly. Also, as the psalm goes on, the author's presenting us and saying, not only is that uh, sort of praise not for people, it's just for, for the great God, it's also not for any other sort of God that you might come across, what we might call small gods or small G gods. And that becomes really obvious right in the middle of the psalm, the centre verse structurally, which is verse 7. Verse 7 says, All who worship images are put to shame, those who boast in idols. Now this verse here is like the shameful counterpoint to the rest of the psalm. All the other verses about praising God and how to do that and what comes from praising God, this verse is what not to do. You know, this is the warning. Don't don't worship idols. Don't worship small gods. Now, not sure what city you're, where you're watching from around the world, but many of you will be watching from the same city as me, Melbourne. And if you walk or drive around Melbourne, there's probably not a lot of small god worship going on, as in the sense there's not a lot of temples to, uh, you know, gods like Zeus or Thor. Uh, there's not a lot of statue worship going on. There's a little bit, uh, but not a whole lot. And so you might go, oh, is this verse relevant to us these days? We don't really have a lot of that sort of small God worship going on these days. I would say, well, hang on, slow down a second. Because as much as that sort of worship maybe isn't that common in Melbourne, we still got a lot of idolatry going on. And actually, it's very similar to that sort of ancient multiple God worship that we see throughout history. Let me give you an example ancient Greek gods. Hermes was the god of commerce, god of money. Now, I haven't seen a temple to Hermes around Melbourne recently, but as a culture, do we still worship commerce? Heck yes, we do. Absolutely. Perhaps now more than ever, uh, you know, in the way we live, in the way we speak, uh, in our hearts and in our minds, of course, yes, we definitely have a worship problem when it comes to money. What about Athena, god of wisdom? We don't worship Athena anymore, but do we still worship wisdom and the gathering of knowledge and people who are seen to be smart? Yes, absolutely we do. What about Dionysus, the god of wine? Uh, no, again, we don't worship Dionysus, but do we worship alcohol in Australian culture? Uh, yeah, from alcoholism to binge drinking to, gee, it's been a hard day, I need a stiff drink, we definitely worship alcohol. And what about Aphrodite, the god of love and beauty? Do we worship love and beauty? Yeah. Why don't we talk about that for, for a little bit in a bit more detail? Because the author here in verse 7 is saying that when we worship these small gods, then we run into a big problem. It actually brings us into a state of shame. Well, let's think about love and beauty. These should be good things, right? Commerce, wisdom, wine, love and beauty, they actually can be fantastic things in life. They don't have to be bad. In their proper place, they can bring great things into our lives. 
they only become a problem when they stop being those sort of smaller parts of life and they get elevated to those big to that big level that only God should be at. That's when they become a problem. So love and beauty should be a great part of life. But when we worship them, they become twisted. And they start to dominate our lives in unhelpful ways. We start to become dissatisfied with our bodies and we become deeply insecure. You know, particularly our culture pushes certain body types and looks that we're meant to have. This is why if you're currently going through puberty where your body's changing a lot, that's where we often experience a lot of insecurity about how we look. Because your body's changing and you're also getting all these messages about what you should be looking like, it can be very difficult to navigate that time. And that's why it can be lead to things like uh, eating disorders, people want to go and get cosmetic surgery to change the way their body looks. Uh, often there can be a lot of regret about that later or things can get botched and that can be a real disaster. And sometimes we can have situations where we criticise other people's looks and make them feel bad because we feel deeply insecure about ourselves. So at least if other people feel worse, then maybe we can feel a bit better about ourselves. That's really messed up. And then, of course, when love and beauty gets elevated to these other levels, then people, you know, start to use it in unhelpful ways to get more power, um, to, and they use it as commodity, you know, we can buy and sell it. And so people and then sex uh, start to lose any connection with relationship and commitment. The Me Too movement has exposed that really well. I mean, it's, it's, it's exposing terrible things, but it's been an important movement in that way just showing all the abuse that happens when sex has nothing to do with love, nothing to do with relationship, nothing to do with commitment. We could go on. Porn addiction, date rape, unwanted pregnancies. When we take small things that can be good and we make them big like God, then they start to get twisted and things go wrong. And the reality is when we do elevate small gods to the level of the great God, there is some pleasure in that. Like we wouldn't do it if there weren't moments of pleasure, but they don't bring joy. There is no deep, lasting joy in worshipping idols. And that's why the language that the psalmists use, the psalmist use here in verse 7, is pretty strong. It doesn't say, oh, you know, idolatry, that's a bit problematic or it's a few issues when you do this. You might run into a few bumps along the road. No, it says when we worship false gods, it brings shame. That's pretty strong language to say it brings shame. It's tough language, but it's fair. We need to hear that warning. It's only one verse here in the middle of the psalm but it's structured very deliberately to be the turning point of the psalm. It's that sort of gut punch warning. We need to hear it clearly. So hopefully we have heard it today. And then we head into the second part of the psalm where, again, we're encouraged to praise God and experience the joy that comes from that. Now, as we go through these, as I was looking through these verses, there was one that really stood out to me as I was preparing for this talk. And I'd like to finish the talk reflecting, particularly on verse 10. Let's have a look at it together. Verse 10 says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. 
for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So we should hate evil. This is an interesting thing to think about. Now, we should hate evil because God hates evil. This is talked about elsewhere in the Bible. And I wonder how you feel about that. How do you feel about God hating, every, ha- hating anything? Not everything, anything. Uh, uh, maybe it f- makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable that God would hate something. I want to make a case that it's good that God hates evil. You see, if we see something that is clearly evil, like that everyone agrees that's evil, that's a horrible injustice that's happening, we want God to be against that. We don't want God to be going, oh, that's great, look at that evil, (laughs) loving it. No, we don't want to follow a God who's like that. Neither do we want to follow a God who's like, eh, whatever, you know, indifferent to it, doesn't care about that sort of evil. No, we want God to be against evil. We want him to hate it. If there's one thing we want God to hate, it's evil. And as a follower of God, it's it's my job, if you're a follower of God as well, then it's our job to hate evil too. So, okay, point made. How? How do we do that? You know, I mean, if there's less evil in the world, uh, then there's more room for joy. Okay, but how? Like day by day, how do we, in a helpful, Jesus-loving way, hate evil? This is a fascinating topic. Oh, I could talk about this for hours. We could do a whole series on it. So let me give you a couple of initial thoughts to get you thinking, to get you talking with others. If you're in a life group, chatting with your life group. If you're not in a life group, joining a life group, highly recommended, and chatting with them about it. Uh, here's a couple of initial thoughts. Because here's, here's the thing, right? We live in what some people are calling cancel culture at the moment, a season of it anyway, where when you decide that someone is wrong, so if I decide, okay, that person or that group of people are wrong about something, they're, they're doing something or saying something that's evil, then I need to cancel them, which means I need to take them down. I need to shout at them, I need to sue them, I need to mock them, I need to threaten them, I need to do a witty video destroying them on YouTube uh, or something like that. You know, I need to basically make sure that they're never seen or heard from again. That's my mission. That's what cancel culture seems to focus on. But when we look at the way Jesus does things, you know, a follower of Jesus, he doesn't respond to evil like that at all. He's got a very different way of dealing with it. For starters, he challenges us, challenges us to first look at the evil inside ourselves. To do some self-reflection and go, well, I'm a contributor to the evil in the world. I'm going to have to deal with that first. He says to take the plank of wood out of your own eye before you deal with the speck of sawdust in your friend's eye. Don't be a hypocrite. Make sure that you are day by day doing your best to deal with the evil in your own life before you start getting too judgmental about the evil in other people's lives. So that's for starters. But then as Jesus looked at the evil and dealt with the evil around him, his job seemed to be, now the way he approached it seemed to be to shine a bright light on the evil and the injustice in the world. Now I've got a bunch of bright lights shining on me here in the studio you know, lighting me up so you can see me clearly on the camera. 
And Jesus seemed to be about shining a bright light on the evil in the world through good actions, through goodness, through love, through grace, through truth. This is how he lived and this is how he taught people to live. And this is how we see his followers living and teaching as well. We've got a bunch of their teaching written down for us in the New Testament section of the Bible. It's perhaps best summarised for us by one of his followers, Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 21, where Paul wrote, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. An excellent summary where he says, you know, we're not just going to add more evil to the world when we see it with angry revenge responses, but we respond with good. So what he's saying here is uh, goodness is our response to evil. We hate evil, but we respond with good. Now, we don't get that from this one verse here in Psalm 97. That's because this psalm is a song, right? When people write songs, you know, they're writing lyrics to songs, what they don't do is give you this poetic sort of line and then go, now, just for a moment, step over here and we're going to do uh, 10 dot points on how to live that out practically. <laughs> you know, that's not how songs work. It's not, uh, you totally lose the flow. So what we do when we come across lines like this in the psalms is we need to zoom out a bit check out what the rest of the Bible has to say, in particular what Jesus has to say uh, and what Jesus' followers have to say so we get a bit of a wider picture. So I sort of just did a little bit of that there over the last couple of minutes to give you a sense of uh, the wider teaching on hating evil. It's just a starter. Hopefully it's been helpful for us today. But please do do your own thinking and take that conversation further because, as I said, there's so much more thinking to do about it. Well, as we put this whole psalm together, where we start by making sure we've got our perspective right, God is big, we are small, he is worthy of our praise. When we resist worshipping the small gods and when we resist evil, that's when we're free to really experience true and deep joy. See, the small gods get us just to focus in on ourselves and really just experience short-term pleasure. But praising the great God who created everything and who loves us unconditionally and who proved that through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, well, that helps us to go beyond ourselves and that helps us to experience joy at a much deeper level. Through the rest of our service today, we have a couple of opportunities to pray, praise God in a couple of different ways. One way is praying and another way is through musical worship. So I encourage you to have the perspective of praise that Psalm 97 is giving us today. Now, at the end of the service, I encourage you to keep that perspective rolling on into the rest of life, through the rest of today and then into your study and your work and your relaxing, all your friendships, all your family relationships, into every part of your life. Because you want that joy, not just when we gather in our church meetings, but you want that joy in every part of life. And this perspective on praise is one of the real keys into having that deep joy. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.